Our liberation, through the completed work of Christ, frees us not only to serve others, generally, but specifically to serve and build up the members of Christ's body. Despite circumstances, it is wonderful and encouraging to be with you, uh, even if uh, virtually. I've prayed for WSBC and the needs of its members and leaders. I do hope you are all getting what you need, and I hope our passage today will be an encouragement to you as it has been for me. Thank you for the the word, Phil, about uh, contacting one another. I think that's very important uh, to do. And thank you, John, for praying about, you know, trusting or relying on, on the Lord. And I'd like to make myself available and also my wife available for those of you who would like to contact us. If you need a break from the day and, and need someone to talk to, my wife, one of the most godly human beings that I know, is a wonderful person to talk to to pray with, and to build up. One aspect of the meditation for today is a reminder to seek first God's kingdom. And especially in this day when we are concerned about what we're going to eat at the next minute or the next day, we still have the reminder to seek first God's kingdom so that our daily needs will fall into place. Well, let's go ahead and continue. Sometimes, you know, going back to what's familiar can uh, give us some, a modicum of, of uh, comfort. And so we'll be looking at Romans, continuing on our series of, uh, on Romans, looking at Romans 14. In his essay on the liberty of a Christian, the great Protestant uh, reformer Martin Luther wrote, a Christian is most free, Lord of all, subject to none. He went on to say, a Christian is a most dutiful servant of all, subject to all. A large part of our Christian life is reconciling what may seem to be this paradox in our state of being. As I just mentioned, there's this seeming paradox between completely free and subject to none other than Christ, but yet the Christian is also servant to all, and subject to all. So can this, what seems to be a paradox, can it be resolved? I think it can. And the solution is gonna be part of our study this morning in Romans chapter 14. So let's read uh, Romans chapter 14. So Romans 14, beginning with verse one. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you 
to pass judgment on the servant of another. It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld. For the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in the honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live, whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. So again, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Now, as to review, uh, before we jump into Romans 14, we've seen throughout this entire book how all humans, Jews and Gentiles, know God and his law that they suppress that knowledge, and they have fallen woefully short of being made right before God. Romans tells us that we're justified through faith alone, which, makes, which puts us in right relation to God, and that all creation awaits cosmic redemption, and that this is all part of God's redemptive plan. Because we are free from the law, we do not indulge sin, but live in thankfulness to God by pursuing godly living. Remember what I've said before, the summary of 
the gospel. If someone asks you, what is the message of the gospel? Remember the three G's, guilt, grace, and gratitude. Now, an important part of this latter part of gospel life, gratitude, is putting ourselves aside, submitting to others, whether that be authorities, and that may be a little bit challenge, challenging uh, these days, or our neighbors. Not only as a testament of our faith, but also to build up the community of believers. And so here's the resolution of this seeming contradiction of being free, yet subject to. And we'll make this as our main point uh, for today, our main thesis. Our liberation through the completed work of Christ frees us not only to serve others generally, but specifically to serve and build up the members of Christ's body. We've been freed by Christ. We are new creations. This is what we call the indicative, our state of being. We are new creatures. Now, this new state of being, this liberating state, should necessarily move us toward Christian charity. The imperative, how we are to live in light of our new state of being. That's a very helpful theological uh, concept to think about. The imperative, what our state is now in Christ, and the indicative, how we are supposed to live in light of that changed state. Now, much of the passage this morning focuses on being patient in building the community of faith. Paul's careful to address both Gentiles and Jews, both of whom have certain practices that may need some adjustments, perhaps a move away from pagan practices or an adjustment from older Jewish habits. A lot of my teaching in college has focused on revolutions, political revolutions, economic revolutions, cultural revolutions, intellectual revolutions, abrupt, sharp historical changes. And the one common element shared by every revolution that I've studied and that I teach is a feeling of anxiety on the part of the people that experience these revolutions. And the anxiety rests on this idea that the old life and its habits have collapsed and we need to find new ways of living. Now, in some cases, this anxiety spills over into violence, social violence, political violence. It doesn't have to, um, but nonetheless, there's always this anxiety. And I think there is a kind of sharp transition in uh, when it comes to the history of Christianity that I'm sure you can feel uh, from the Gentiles and even the Jews. And Paul understands the, this, this sensitivity that comes with historical transitions. And that's why he warns against being too quick to judge, especially on issues that first, A, don't need harsh judgment, or B, that might unnecessarily divide the community, or because it might unnecessarily divide the community. Now, before we sort of dive into 
the the passage, and I'm going to be dealing with this passage in kind of large uh, um, chunks, or, or or I want to try to put it in kind of a coherent narrative. Um, but before I do that, I feel compelled to say something about judging. <laughs> um, where I'm from, and where some of you are from, um, people hate to be judged. One of the most misquoted scripture passages, if not the primarily misquoted passage, comes uh, in Jesus' warning not to judge lest ye be judged. Right? But when this passage is brought up, it's not to remind us that there is a moral standard by which we're all accountable. Rather, it's invoked for the sake of justifying whatever we want to do. So when we say, don't judge, lest ye be judged, that's actually license to do whatever we want. So we'll say at the outset, in this regard, that, that, that Christians, first, have no license to sin. Second, although we are freed from the condemnation of God and thus the judgment of God in Christ, or because of Christ, Paul reminds us, according to Romans 6, that we're not to continue in sin that grace may abound. Largely because we're new. We're different now. As Christians, we live lives of gratitude, as I've already said. We seek to humbly obey God for what he's freely given to us. And the third thing we can say about judgment, especially in relation to the passage today, is that Paul is talking to the Christian community. So we can definitely agree that, uh, that the judgment he's referring to is not a matter of, of license, as the world uses it. And we have the testimony of Paul himself, as he at times courageously uh, and rather aggressively defends essential or fundamental doctrines of the faith. We also have cases of Paul appealing to secular law and doing so in a kind of aggressive <laughs> a kind of an aggressive way. So this is a little bit different. So now let's meditate on Romans uh, uh, 14. And I want to kind of focus this in line with the life of the Christian as a life of gratitude. So we're going to look, we're going to sort of uh, tilt over into the imperative side, how we are to build, uh, build up one another in the community of faith. And I've come up with five headings that will kind of fold the verses together in this passage. And these five headings relate to what our mind should, mindset should be and how we're supposed to act. So the first is, the first is the mindset that we should have. Number one, in the building up of the faith, we should have confidence and care. Paul is someone who reflects a confidence in his emancipation in Christ. This is really instructive for us today. How many of us believe that Christ has freed us from the law of sin and death? Absolutely, completely. I don't know about you, but I tend to go through periods of doubt, and I search for ways to be more holy. Yes, thank you, Lord. You've done the work completely, but i got to do something. And... It's the habits that we hold on to that Paul is particularly concerned about. Yet, knowing the freedom <clears throat> that we have as Christians, 
Paul shows how on occasion such freedom may be and should be limited, but of course this is uh, limited voluntarily. He demonstrates this by looking at something that has been important in the Jewish, also Gentile, traditions. But issues that are not as important as ultimate issues. And so he focuses on special days and food in the whole passage. Now let's consider the issue of days. <clears throat> I've seen a lot of people use this passage to... Um, disregard uh, a day like today, the day, a day like the Lord's Day. Um, let's keep in mind that Paul is not relegating, not dismissing the Lord's Day, the transition from the Sabbath day. Paul doesn't reject this. But I don't think the keeping of the Lord's Day is his prime concern in this regard. It seems from what commentators have said, Paul is dealing with certain kind of day-to-day uh, -day activities, such as days of sort of secular, meaning this age, not lasting activity, uh, versus more sacred uh, activity, right? I'm gonna, I'm gonna take my day, the, the entire day will be serving the Lord, and that's gonna be a, a completely holy day. I'm not gonna waste my time with, you know, sort of unholy, <clears throat> uh, unholy, holy things, okay? Um, I need to personally, you know, this week I need to th start the process of renewing my work permit. Uh, I wouldn't say that that's a, real, that's a real sacred activity. It's just something that I, uh, my wife and I, uh, need, need to do. And so we're going to take that time, uh, uh, to do it. Now, someone may come along and say, well, I'm not going to deal with my work permit. I'm not going to take responsibility for my life. I'm going to pray all day. I'm going to worship all day. I'm going to do ministry, you know, all day. Well, I think we have to be careful in imposing um, a uh, almost a um, a false piety uh, on days. Perhaps a, a, a an equivalent for us today in regard to holy days might be religious days like you know on the Christian calendar, uh, like Christmas or uh, Easter, you know, that, that many of us celebrated uh, last week. Now, I think it's fine to celebrate these remembrances, but in the end, we know that we are not bound to a celebration in December uh, or, or in April. We celebrate Christ's coming to earth and his resurrection uh, every day, and with a specific focus on the Lord's Day. I mean, there's been days here when, uh, here in China, when I've had to work on Christmas Day, well, I think it would be false and uh, disingenuous for me to say, you know, that's, that's uh, a holy day that I'm abound to. Um, it doesn't violate my conscience, in other words, because I have to work on what I think is an ordinary day. And we can, we can apply, we can go on and on uh, uh, with this. You can think through uh, other uh, days uh, and have discernment as you draw your conclusions. Now, concerning food, the Jews are coming from a tradition that links their sanctification with restrictions on what they can and cannot eat. This distinction, remember Peter's dream in Mark 7, 
this distinction has been torn down. But this is precisely why patience, discernment, and a suspension of judgment is needed. I mean, have a little sympathy. Consider the radical change that this must have been for Peter. It's not easy. This is why someone like Paul wants to gently guide new believers. But again, Paul certainly gets frustrated when, when certain more mature believers act in such a way as to recall older habits, which conflict with their conscience. So consider the case of Peter in Galatians 2. When he was in Antioch, Peter enjoyed fellowship, honest fellowship with Gentile Christians. Uh-oh, but when visitors from the Church of Jerusalem called on him, he felt pressure to withdraw from sharing the same table with the Gentiles so that he can, so that he can eat with the Jews. Such an example is the kind of division that Paul is warning against. Paul accused Peter, in the original language, of kind of play-acting, acting a part which did not correspond with his inner convictions. So Peter was kind of exercising a bad faith or a, a sort of disingenuous uh, faith. Now, I don't want to necessarily beat, beat up on uh, on Peter. I, Peter is one of the one of the individuals in the gospel that I'm just so drawn to, um, largely because he's someone that reflects maybe my own life and other people's life. One of the things that I appreciate about Peter is that when Peter got things right, man, did he get things right so well. But when Peter got things wrong, boy, did he get things, boy, did he get things wrong. Uh, there's no, nothing lukewarm, it seems, with, with Peter. Now, we also have the case of the Jerusalem Council. When Gentiles were welcomed into church fellowship, fellowship they were compelled to abstain from food uh, 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 rejected by their Jewish brethren and to conform to Jewish marriage laws. Now, Paul may not have budged when it came to theological principles, Yet at times, he was most accommodating. Remember, he circumcised Timothy, for instance, even though circumcision was no longer a, re a requirement and, didn't, and doesn't really mean anything at now. And that's really part of the issue, practices that are required or voluntary. So in one, one sense, Paul encourages converts to have patience and wisdom as they limit their freedom in non-essentials for the sake of maintaining fellowship with other Christians, not all of whom could be expected to be as completely mature, emancipated in mind as Paul was. Now, one of the food provisions of the Council of Jerusalem was the abstaining from the flesh of animals which had been offered in sacrifice to idols, a, 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 which was bound to raise questions by Christians in pagan society. The buying of butcher meat in a pagan city presented some Christians with a problem of conscience. This was meat that came from a pagan sacrifice. You know, this deity received his portion and the rest would be sold by temple authorities. Some had a problem with eating it. Others were, uh, uh, some had problems eating it. Others were a little bit more open-minded. 
years ago, my wife and I visited uh, uh, San Francisco, um, where I grew up, and we visited a very old Presbyterian church, uh, Presbyterian church of the sort of turn of the 20th century. Uh, yeah, turn, turn into the 20th century. But the church had been converted into a Buddhist temple. And it was open to visitors, and we went around. We had an elder that, that uh, brought, us, um, brought us around. And at one time, the Buddhist uh, monks came, and they grabbed a couple oranges from under the altar of Buddha. And these, these, this fruit was given in, uh, in, as an offering uh, to the Buddha. And they gave us our fruit, and my wife and I both um, uh, ate it. We didn't have a problem uh, with eating the, I think it was an orange that they, that they gave, and there were a lot of oranges piled up. Uh, and we didn't have a problem eating it, but I can understand if someone had uh, an issue with that, which we needed to be concerned about. So what Paul demonstrates wisdom in that he carefully examines his actions so as not to hurt other believers. Um, although he probably thought that their mindset was wrong. So awareness of context and love for the brethren uh, were to be considered higher than mere knowledge. And I think this is the nature of wisdom. Social situations can be complex. In Rome, there may have been a broad spectrum of dedicated Jewish customs and Gentiles far removed from those customs. Some might have been a little more liberal and others may have been a bit more legalistic. But this was the time to smooth out those divisions. You know, whenever these differences of habits come up, we can go in one of two directions. Either you can intensify the division or you could work to smooth out the dividing line. And Paul chose the latter path wishing to safeguard the Roman Christians in, uh, against imposing an unnecessary law, hence the warning against judging, and encouraging them to treat differences in earthly practices as an occasion for charity, forbearance, forbearance self-control, and understanding. Number two, uh, the number two thing that we can do um, to build up the community is to be an example. The passage tells us not to uh, let, no, let us no more pass judgment on one another, but to decide. And, and in fact, the word, the phrase pass judgment and decide seem to share a similar meaning. So if you're uncomfortable with pass judgment, which you really shouldn't be, by the way, then meditate on decide. Decide for yourself how you're going to treat your brothers and your sisters. Part of this is uh, uh, the judgment not on someone else, but the judgment that, uh, uh, on yourself. The main, the main idea here is never to set an example which might lead another into sin. A Christian stumbles if imitating the action of a more emancipated Christian. He doesn't, he, he does, if he does something of which his own conscience does not approve, conscience does not approve. Now, this is, of course, keep in mind, this is different than egregiously causing someone to sin. It would be better for the emancipated or the more mature Christian to help his weaker brother to have a more enlightened conscience 
but the process can't be rushed. See, because Paul says, now, why, why should we do this? Well, Paul is persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. So here Paul is reminding us of what's said in Mark's, uh, uh, Mark's, Mark 7. He's persuaded in the Lord Jesus. And as one commentator says, this phrase, persuaded in the Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, is a consideration of the life and welfare of the believing fellowship. Ultimately, defilement, in this case, is located in people's minds, not in material objects, as Titus 1.15 says. How arrogant it is for us to say about what God has created and what God has said is good, to say that it is not good. But you want to be careful. Don't let what you eat cause the ruin of one for whom Christ died. Now, ruin meaning to disrupt or get in the way of what Christ has done for us. An unnecessary addition to our salvation. Okay, don't eat this. You kind of forget about what Christ has done. Remember, this is all about in the Lord. And Paul reminds us about Christ. These additions interfere with our confidence in the full work of Christ. So the fellow, your fellow believer is more important than what we may desire, and a desire that may not be sinful in itself. So again, don't fall into calling something evil that is not evil, uh, which then puts you in, in danger of uh, slandering even your fellow believer. Number three, Look past these earthly things and focus on the kingdom. Look through the food and the days to focus on God's kingdom. The kingdom of God does not mean food and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy. Here Paul reminds his readers what the kingdom of God is really about. Daily necessities like food and drink are in one sense, ethically neutral or secondary compared with things that matter. We can see this in Romans chapter 5. We can see this in Matthew chapter 5. Now be assured that the kingdom is not necessarily a distant reality with no taste of it in the immediate. We have here in uh, verse 17 the reference to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit brings believers presently into the good of their coming inheritance. For Paul, the kingdom of God is the future inheritance of the children of God, yet in the Holy Spirit, blessings can be enjoyed already, especially for those who serve Christ. And I should offer another qualifying note. I do want to be very sensitive in this regard. We are very much concerned about our daily needs these days, especially in Shanghai. Paul is not saying that we should forsake food and drink. Let's become ascetics. That's not directly relevant to this passage, but nonetheless, we have a response from Christ in Matthew 6 to seek first the kingdom of God and all these earthly things will be given to you. So think about the opportunity, though very difficult, we have at this moment. 
especially when we say, God, I don't know when my next meal will come, but I'm going to seek first your kingdom. I'm going to walk humbly. I'm going to seek justice. I'm going to love mercy, pursue peace, cultivate joy. These are all reflective of kingdom citizenship, and I'm going to live in thankful obedience to you. My focus will be on the kingdom, and God will provide our needs. That should be a, a, an encouragement to us and a comfort to us in these, uh, these times. Number four, with your focus on the kingdom, now, number four, focus on the faith community. So let us then pursue, pursue righteousness and kingdom living for the mutual building, the building up of our common life as believers. This is kind of a repeat of verse 7. Actually, this is uh, from verse 19, but it, but it connects back to verse 7. For none of us lives to himself, and none dies to himself. Our lives are wrapped up in the person and work of Christ. Galatians 2, we no longer live, but Christ lives in us. And this is the work of God. His inward work of grace cultivates or causes the believer's spiritual development. Such a work carried out through individual members, Christian members, will have a beneficial effect on the growth of the entire community. So let's not ruin it with non-essential or divisive issues. And so we get to that, that, that part of this passage where, where Paul makes a judgment. He makes a judgment for himself. I know what my focus is in terms of the kingdom, my state of being, and my focus on the community. But, as verse 21 gets into, it is, uh, it is right not to eat meat or drink wine. And this relates to a, a kind of Paul's policy that we see in 1 Corinthians 8 and 9. If food is a cause of my brother's falling, I'll never eat meat, lest I call, cause my brother to fall. It may sound easy, but that's very difficult. I love meat. I really love meat. Am I willing to give up meat for, for love of the brethren? That's something that I have to judge for myself. And he was willing to do this. He's, he's willing to take, you know, I don't know, the higher road here, despite his belief that food is not prohibited in itself. He's doing it for because of love for the believer. Number five, and finally, let's focus on conscience. Focus on the kingdom. Focus on the community. And then let's get back to focusing on our conscience. Consider for a second verse 22. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Now, this is interesting because this idea of faith is a little bit different than what we've been talking about earlier, especially as it relates to redemption. Faith, in this sense, is a firm and intelligent conviction that what we are doing 
is right before God. The sort of antithesis of feeling self-condemned in what we permit ourselves to do. Happy is he who has no reason to judge himself for what he approves. He, in other words, he being the one who has a good conscience. That last verse, he who has doubts is condemned if he eats. Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. So if conscience tells you that you're doing that which you shouldn't be doing, then it's better to comply with your conscience. Now, this is not, strictly logically speaking, a matter of creating your own law apart from God's work. If you do something about which your conscience makes you feel uneasy, right? We often feel condemned in our core and we bring about a sense of guilt because our action doesn't arise from conviction. And that can be very discouraging. That can, be, that can weaken us in our faith. <clears throat> but we're, not, we're also not being very honest with ourselves, nor are we with others. And again, not to pick on Peter uh, uh, with a peck of pickles. Peter, peckle, patronizing. Anyway, um, not to pick on Peter, but, uh, you know, I think, like, like I said, he exercised a bit of bad faith uh, that hurt his conscience, but also hurt the community. So whatsoever does, whatsoever does not proceed from faith is sin. The implication here is that an action performed against the voice of conscience can never be right. My boys and I recently watched a film adaptation of Shakespeare's Hamlet. And there's a line in the play, Hamlet, but also in the film, and I've seen a lot of uh, Hamlet uh, adaptations live and on film, where Polonius, the character Polonius, gives guidance to his son Laertes, who's going on a very long journey, sort of at the beginning of the play. Polonius says to his son, he says, to thine own self be true. He's giving him instruction as to how he's supposed to, you know, uh, live because he's going to be outside of the, the kingdom. To thine own self be true. Now, what does this mean? This doesn't mean that he should make up his own law nor his own religion, but rather he should pursue the truth and willingly hold on to it, regardless of the pressures of the world especially if it is right, and he also believes that it is right. Believing or doing something because of societal pressures is to kind of live not a whole life, not a complete life. Whatever it is you believe, believe with conviction. Own it. Whatever you do, do it with pure confidence. Those of us who are parents, we teach our children how to pray. We, we catechize our children. We want them to believe. And at one point, our children have to make a kind of uh, uh, heartfelt acceptance of what it is they're going to believe. And so we can come to our conclusion uh, for today. First of all, believe confidently that Christ has fully satisfied for all your sins. Set your minds on things above. Know that you no longer live, but Christ lives in you. And 
and receive the invitation of the gospel, this ultimate liberation. Those of you who have not, make that discernment, make that judgment for yourself today. And for those who have made such a decision, and many of you have, and I know you have, because I have seen the fruits of the work of the Holy Spirit in your lives, those of you who have made that decision, then gently and wisely communicate this freedom to others for the growth of the Christian community and the advancement of the gospel. Let me close this portion uh, with prayer. Let's pray. Great God in heaven, we do thank you and we praise you for the work that you've done. Lord, I'm always reminded of that famous hymn, the line in the famous hymn, Nothing in my hands do I bring, only to your cross do I cling. Let us cling to the cross. Let us cling to Christ and his resurrection. Let us continually tug at his, at his cloak uh, to put our head on his bosom, to recline with him, to embrace him and not let him go, because he won't let us go. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would build us up as a community. Lord, we're living in some difficult times. Lord God, we need you desperately. We need your Holy Spirit to guide us in truth, to convict us of sin, and to glorify the Son in our lives. It's understandable that we may be going through times of frustration, times of anxiety, and there's nothing in our strength that can uh, eliminate uh, these things other than your miraculous uh, care through your Spirit. I pray that you would do so. And even when we are separated like this, I pray that you would motivate us to, to actions that would build up the community of faith. So, Lord Jesus, pray for us. Continue to intercede for us. And we pray this to the Father with the help of the Holy Spirit and because of the work of Jesus Christ. Amen.